the story is told of two elderly women who were out driving in a very large car. I guess for some reason, the older we get, the larger the car gets. But uh, both could barely see over the dashboard. And as they were cruising along, they came to an intersection. Stoplight was red, but they just went on through. woman in the passenger seat thought to herself, I must be losing my mind, but I swear that the light was red. But she didn't know to say anything, and she just waited. And sure, they came to another intersection, and the light was red, and they drove right through that one. And she was thinking, maybe I should say something, but I might be losing my mind. And so they come to the third one. Sure enough, it's red as can be, and she knows this time they had just driven right through it. And she turned to, to, the, to the lady driving, and she said, Mildred, do you realize we just drove through three red lights? You could have got us killed. Mildred looked at her and said, am I driving? <laughs> you know, the, the point is that, you know, we all know folks who are like Mildred, you know, oblivious to the obvious. You know, they just, it's kind of like the Pharisees and scribes of Jesus' day. Many today miss the obvious as it relates to uh, the love of God for mankind. You know, one of the great chapters of the Bible, a passage that focuses on the joy which comes with finding that which was lost, is what we started to examine the last time we're together. We're going to pick up again on that today. I was going through a mailing that we got this week, and I think it was from Sharper Image, and look, I was just kind of leafing through it. And inside this particular uh, um, magazine was a, it looked like it was some type of a transmitter, and it had receivers that you put on those items that you most frequently lose. And so if you have remote control, you stick something on that, your keys, your glasses, you name it. You know, you know what those things are that you're always looking for. And then they have a transmitter. You push the transmitter and it'll, it'll ring wherever it is or it'll buzz or whatever. And I thought, wow, you know what? The, the, the length that we go through to try to find those things that are lost. And in this particular chapter of Luke chapter 15, God's lost and found chapter, we see one of the greatest parables of all. It's the truest picture ever sketched of the foolishness and the lost condition of mankind. And at the same time, the most wonderful picture that's ever painted of God's seeking love and his mercy. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 15, and we'll pick up the account in verse 11 where we read these words. And he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, And he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hands, hired hands, have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to his father, I have sinned against heaven in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. 
and bring the fatted calf, kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was found, he was lost and has been found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard the music and the dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and he was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began entreating him. But he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a kid that I might be merry with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, my child, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. If you recall from our last time together, Jesus was accused of, quote, the heinous sin of receiving and welcoming to himself sinners and tax gatherers in verse 1 of this passage. And uh, the, the, the uh, religious leaders thought that this to be unthinkable. And this, you know, when they were demanding Jesus to give an, a, an explanation for his actions. And they had these serious, mean-spirited attitude, this mindset that was wrong before God. And we always got to keep in mind the context in which this answer comes because it's, an, it's a direct answer to that particular accusation or that question. You know, what do you think you're doing bringing, you know, having these people, these people that we despise, these despicable people of the world, the lowest of the lows, what, what do you think you're doing having them come to you, these tax gatherers and these sinners? And so the answer that's laid out before us uh, unfolds in three panels. It's a parable that has three pictures, and without each of the pictures, it's not complete in and of itself. Though we get a picture in, in the first panel of what we saw the last time we were together, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. It's a theme of the Gospel of Luke, Luke 19.10, for I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. And we see the picture of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, Christ himself, called himself the good shepherd, and that he would lay down his life for his sheep and how the good shepherd would go after the one who strayed to bring him back to the safety of the fold and that uh, we see a picture of God the son doing exactly that taking the burdens of the sins of the world upon his shoulders and, and bringing us back full circle as it were to the original design of God to our ultimate creation of of being in fellowship with God who has created us the second panel was that of the woman who searched diligently uh, for that lost coin, that, that co uh, coin of silver. And it's a reminder of how the Holy Spirit of God goes throughout the earth looking for those and, and seeking people who would seek God, softening hearts ahead of time to receive the truth of the message of God. Anytime I go anywhere or speak anywhere, I always pray that God would prepare the hearts of those who would be there to receive what, what He wants me to share, the truth of His Word, and that God's Spirit would go forth ahead of time and, and soften hearts so that those who hear His message would be receptive to what God has to say. And in this final panel, this final piece of this great parable, we see the picture of, of the love of God, the Father, as He brings back and restores a lost son the greatest of all arguments. And Jesus, as he always did, his argument went from the lesser to the greater. He took that which was a sheep and then took that which was a coin and said, you know, let's look at this. And now let's look at the, the most ultimate example of all, 
Let's look at how a father receives a son who was lost to this world and brings him back to himself. And so as we look at this, he moves that argument. And so now we're ready for what we see. It's basically a three-point outline that emerges, these three truths as we go through it. The first one is that we see first and foremost the sinful rebellion of a younger son. We're not going to go through the whole passage, but we need to look at least at verse 11 and 12 at this point uh, to take a look and see what it is that's going on. And in verse 11 and 12, we're told Jesus outlines the picture for us. A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. We see the reason for his rebellion that's found here as we take a look at this particular passage. Uh, first and foremost, we notice that his son went to him and said, Hey, Dad, you know what? I'm not going to wait till you die to get my inheritance. I want my money and I want it now. I want whatever is mine now. According to the law, the older son would get two-thirds, the younger son a third, or about 30% of whatever the estate was worth. And he came to him and said, You know what? I'm not waiting. I don't want to wait. I want it now. And, 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 you know, if that's not a reflection of a youthful heart, I don't know what is. I want everything. You know, we see it all the time in, in young people in our culture. I want everything that my parents and grandparents worked 40 or 50 years to, to accomplish. I want it now. And then we, you know, we afford them the luxury because we make credit so easy for people to get that we just say, oh, you can have it now. You know, and every advertiser, you can have everything you want and you can have it now. But you just don't realize you're mortgaging your future for all of those things you want now. But we want to go ahead and sell it to you now. We want to give it to you now. And unfortunately, what God knows about us that we don't really know about ourselves is that a lot of times the things that we want now are the worst things we could ever get. First Timothy chapter 6, Paul warned Timothy when he said, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. And if that's not an indication of the story that's unfolding before us, I don't know what is. And I guess the, the, the question or the, the principle that we need to look at at this point is this, you know, we need to make sure that, you know, do we really want the things that we ask God to give us? Do we really want them? Are we really in a position to handle them? Should not all our prayers be tempered with, Lord, you know, I want this if you think it's best for me in my walk with you. I would like that if it doesn't destroy me spiritually. I would like that if it doesn't cause you to be put on the back burner. I, you know, I think that I want this, but you know what? I don't really know. And we've already learned as we've gone through Luke, you know, the pattern that Jesus gave to pray. The pattern was always this. You know what, Lord? You know what? Not my will be done, but yours. This is what I think I want, but at the end of the day, I'm willing to be content with whatever it is that you think I am able to, to handle appropriately. Th this son didn't have any of those thoughts. This son was, give me what I want, when I want it, I want it now. And the question is, well, why in the world did his dad give it to him? And I'll tell you why. Because God often allows a sinner to go his way. Is that what you want? Fine. See, God gives us the freedom to choose. God created man with the ability to choose to love God or to choose to reject God. To choose to be obedient to God's commands or to choose to be rebellion against them. 
And Adam chose to rebel against God, and through Adam's sin, sin entered into the world for all of us, and with sin came death, the consequence of his rebellion. And so God oftentimes says, you know what, that's the way you want to go? Go ahead and go that way. You've got the freedom to choose. And from this parable, from the story of this young man's life, I learned the importance of choosing wisely. This, this son did not choose wisely. The reason for his rebellion was that he wanted what he wanted when he wanted it, and he wanted it now, and he wasn't mature enough to handle what was given to him. The results are devastating, and the results always of, of poor choices are devastating before God. A friend and I were talking this morning about you know, a, a person that we knew years ago in one of our Ram Bible studies who had everything that the world had to offer and it wasn't enough. And so he went and he got involved in a drug deal. And the drug deal led to his incarceration. And his incarceration led him to try to, uh, to put out a contract to, to uh, kill the witness who testified against him and the judge who sentenced him. And at the end of the day, he ended up with 40 years to life in prison without the possibility of parole at the age of about 30 or 32 years old. And he can't get out of prison until he's 72 if he lives that long. And you think about just the foolishness of the decisions that we make oftentimes in life. And the results are always tragic. The results are always devastating. And the results in this young man's, man's life would arrive quickly than he ever thought. Because if you look at verse 13 with me, it says, And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, and he went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. He spent everything. And a severe famine occurred in the country and, be, and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of the country. That man sent him out to feed pigs. And his lo- he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that swine were eating and no one was giving him anything. See, we're told that it didn't take long for him to take off. Notice what it said. And not many days later, not many days after he got this inheritance, he said, you know what, I'm out of here. And he went to a distant land, and the reason he went to a distant land is because he didn't want to be accountable. He didn't want to be under the scrutiny. He didn't want to have an answer for the decisions that he was making and the things that he was doing with the money and the estate that he was given. He wasn't a good steward. He wasn't faithful in what was given to him. And he didn't want to sit under the watchful eye of his dad or anybody like him. And so he said, you know what, I think I'm going to go on a trip for a while. I'm going to take a journey. And then he left, and and he left, and the reason that he left was very simple. Because he wanted to do what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it. And he didn't want to answer to anybody. He didn't want to be accountable to anybody for his actions and for his lifestyle and for his behavior. And he thought, if I get out from under this umbrella that's so stifling, I can just do what I want to do when I want to do it. And nobody can tell me otherwise. See, the reason he left not long after that is because sin is rapid in its development and sinners are often in a hurry to get away from God and to hide from His presence. We don't want to be accountable. We want to get away from everything. See, his heart was already far from his father because his heart had already made up the decision long before he asked for the request. So his spiritual life had already departed before his physical life followed that. You follow what I'm saying? He had already made a decision. Now he just needed the means to be able to do it. And once he had the means to do it, he said, I'm out of here now. It was already planned out. It was already going that direction. See, that's why God says that you and I must guard our hearts. 
That's why we've got to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We can't have divided loyalties. We can't have a divided interest. That's why Jesus said, you can't. You cannot love God and money. You can't love them both equally at the same time. You have got to love God first. Because if you have money and access to money and resources, if you don't love God first, then you are going to wander away from the faith and you're going to destroy your life. Because there's many snares and temptation that come along with it. But if you are not spiritually grounded in your love for God, then you are a disaster waiting to happen. And we see it all the time, don't we? See, his heart was already far from his father, and now his physical departure was just, it just kind of was an exclamation point to what was going on behind the scenes. And you know, I see it a lot of times in ministry. And I'll tell you how it manifests itself. I see people who are walking with the Lord or they're going in the right direction and then they kind of get sidetracked. The worries of the world, deceitfulness of riches, some of the things that come along and they think they're missing out on something. God's holding back from them. The enemy whispers in our ear, hey, you know what? You can have it all. You can enjoy it all and God's trying to hold you back. God's trying to constrain you. God doesn't want you to have the abundant life that he says he does. You can have everything, but you know what? But you've got to get out from the accountability, this umbrella of your fellow Christian friends. And the next thing you know, we find people, that, man, they haven't been to church for a while. Where are they at? They don't come to chapel anymore, Bible study. Where are they at? What's going on? I'll tell you what's going on. Every time a person has, has disappeared, unless there is a physical real reason or an illness, there is something spiritually wrong that's going on in their life. Every time. I can't think of any time that's an exception. Illness is an exception, but other than that, it's like, what's going on in your life? Well, 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 well. What? What is that? Well, I know what well, well, well means. Well, what well, well, means, you know what? I kind of got sidetracked and I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And I got sick of my accountability people. I got sick of my Bible study. I got sick of guys holding me accountable, women holding me accountable. I got sick of people at church, you know, asking how I'm doing, what's going on. Felt so guilty about it. Couldn't sit there anymore. I just had to go. Distant land, distant country, far from God and God's people. Because we don't want to be reminded. But if you're truly a child of God, you're reminded every day because the Spirit of God lives within you and says, what are you doing? What are you slopping with pigs for? What's wrong with you? What, you know what? You got, what you, what, what's wrong? See, but the results are always devastating. And you know what the other thing that saddens me? It, it saddens me to think that God's gifts to you and I could develop this latent evil in our sin nature. You, you follow what I'm saying? That God could bless us and his blessing, we can turn into something evil instead of something good. Deuteronomy chapter 8, God warned Israel, hey, listen, you're going to go into land that you didn't plant anything. The vineyards are all there. The cities are all there. The walls are all built. Everything's there. I'm going to hand it over to you. But you know what? When you get there, don't start looking around and think, hey, look what we did. You didn't do it. God did it. And then when you get there, start and think, you know what? I don't need God anymore because we got everything we need. God goes, wait a minute. You wouldn't have any of it if I didn't give it to you. I want to remind you, don't forget. Don't forget me. And how often that happens. I see it all the time in baseball. Guys that go through single A, double A, triple A. They go to chapel every week. All of a sudden they make the big leagues. And it's like, where yet? I don't need God anymore. I don't need him to get here. Hey, listen, chief, you need God to stay here. And so, you know, that's what it comes down to. But, you know, hey, everyone's worried about being politically correct. Hey, we need to be preaching truth. Because this is what God's word tells us right here. You know, you think about today many are blessed by God. Financially, in our culture, we have resources, and, and, and yet we use those resources to do drugs and to do alcohol, to gamble it away. 
to, to travel as we want, when we want, with no accountability, no sense of our responsibility to serving God. Uh, we use these material resources and, the, and these material blessings, uh, this good life that we live that robs us ultimately of God's life and what, and what He's called us to do. And we don't like to hear this because it cramps our style. But, you know, I have a responsibility to, to look at the Word of God and to, and to help illustrate it in a culture that is no different than what this young man was doing. He said, give me what I want. And God, you know what? I don't need you anymore, Father. I'll do what I want to do when I want to do it. And you know what? And the results are going to be the same. They're devastating. See, athletes who have been given ability to, to play games, whether it's at youth levels or, or the higher levels, and, and I see these abilities that God has given us all for the purpose to do what? To go from one tournament after another every weekend, every weekend. There's no room for God. There's no room for church. There's no room for Bible study. There's no room for spiritual things because I've got this ability, this athletic talent that who gave to you? God? 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have? God hasn't given you. God gave it to you, and you don't even have the time of day to be able to thank Him for it, praise Him for it, and set aside some time for Him. And that's our culture. God says the results are the same. They're devastating. You know, the bottom line is this. People want to get away from God because they want to do what's wrong before God. At the bottom of all of it is we have a love to sin. People quarrel with God's truth because God's... Truth quarrels with them. I don't like what I just heard. Why is that? Because it's too true. It hits me where I live. It shakes me up. And so I need to find a different explanation, a different interpretation. I'll go to a different church where they'll tell me what I want to hear and they don't really care. Because they're not committed to telling me the truth. They're committed to just trying to keep me coming. And obviously you know that's not where I'm coming from. (laughs) Because, you know, it's only the truth of the Word of God that sets people free from the entanglement of sin. See, and what was the result from running from God? Notice this. It was an estate that was squandered. I don't know if you've ever thought about the the gifts and abilities and talents that God has given you as being an estate that is possibly squandered. You think about the love that ought to have gone to God in this man's life was wasted on loose living. The love, the energy that ought to have been spent in doing what is right was wasted in a sinful lifestyle. You know, the end of all of it was that he spent it all. You know, and that's exactly what happens to material possessions. One day it just runs out. And with it runs out the temporary pleasures of this life. The Bible says, make no mistake about it, that sin is pleasurable. If it wasn't pleasurable, no one would be tempted to do it. But the pleasure is always short term. The pleasure pleasure is never long term. Payday one day. And look look at this kid's life. He spent everything. And at the end of all of it, guess what happened? Oh, severe famine. In our culture, I look at it this way. I see people all the time. They take all the equity out of their house. They refinance and they buy this, they buy that, they buy another thing. Oh, economy changed. Oh, devaluation. Oh, what happened? Now we're in over our head. The severe famine came. Oh, lost my job. And everything that we have, we use to acquire more material things because we've got people who tell us, 
What can you afford? What kind of monthly payment can you afford? And then we got a culture that mistakenly believes because we can afford a payment that somehow that's, the, that's okay to do. We don't ask the question. God's people don't ask, can I afford it? God's people ask the question, God, what do you want me to do with the resources that you have given us? Not whether we can afford it or not afford it, but God, is this choice pleasing to you? Because God has given us the resources, but one day after we've spent it all, then the famine comes, we lose a job, we get sick, or other things happen. We say, God, you haven't taken care of us. And he says, man, your, your pockets were lined with coin. You had money in the bank, you had equity in your house, you had all these things, and guess what? You don't have anything anymore because you went out and spent it to please yourself. Don't blame me. devastating notice this it was devastating this is you know what ends up happening to him is just tragic and he went out and attached himself to one of the citizens literally the word means he glued himself to a gentile as a servant and as as horrible a humiliation for a jew as that was it got worse he sent him out to feed pigs There's no lower place for a Jewish boy, young man to be than being a slave to a Gentile who then fed pigs. And all I'm going to say is what I've said many times before, and that is this. Sin will take you further than you wanted to go. Sin will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And sin is going to cost you more than you are willing to pay. And this man's life is an example of that. Oh, I didn't bank on this. I didn't count on this. No, you didn't. No, you didn't, but it still happened anyway. Payday one day. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he's going to reap. Sow righteousness and you'll reap it. Sow wrong, sin, you're going to reap the consequences of that. And notice this. And he went and attached himself and he was longing to fill his stomach with pods that the pigs were eating and no one was giving anything to him. I love this. This is the perfect picture of every person who's got a little bit of money in their pocket and they buy their friends. Hey, another round of drinks for the, the group over here. Another line of Coke for you guys over here. Another this, another that. Hey, can I buy you something? Whatever, man, I got money. And then you know what? And whoa, look all the friends he has now. He's got money. He's buying. Hey, guess what? Big crowd comes along. Day comes, pocket's empty. No money. Where's all his friends? Not one of them are around because they weren't his friends anyway. They were just leeches that just sucked him dry of everything that he had. And he was too stupid to see it and know it. And they just said, thank you, see ya. We're off to go suck the blood out of somebody else. They were gone. There wasn't even a person who would give him something pigs eat. Not one. And isn't that great? Isn't God merciful sometimes that, you know, he doesn't allow people to come in our life to continue to promote our sinful behavior? But we just hit rock bottom. It's the end of it. So in verse 17, we see one of the great butts of the Bible. And it marks his recognition of his miserable condition. Notice what he says. But when he came to his senses. That is the greatest line in scripture. One of the great ones. When he came to his senses. Literally, it's telling us that when people are caught up in a sinful lifestyle, they, they, lifestyle, they are out of their minds. They are out of the mind that God had given us. When Adam chose to sin against God, he lost his mind and chose to do that which was wrong. And because of that, all of us have lost our minds as well. 
But the Bible says, but when he came to his senses, and I love that, 180 degrees, he recognized what a miserable life that he is in. You know, the Bible is telling us that, you know, sin makes no sense. This guy was out of his mind to rebel against a loving father. This guy was out of his mind to leave a home where he had never experienced need. This guy was out of his mind to turn his back on all the blessings that he knew throughout his life and risk it all for something that was unproven, or if anything, proven to be temporary at best. This guy was out of his mind to make the choices that he did, and I see that all the time. The guy who leaves his wife and his children to go run off with another woman is out of his mind. He doesn't realize all the blessings that he has. The woman who does the same thing, she's out of her mind. The person that takes the resource they have and they start to do drugs and alcohol and gambling and all these things, you're out of their stinking mind, doing things that will destroy their life. They're not thinking soundly or rationally. They're, They're just nuts. And you can see it all the time. We look at it and notice it. And God says, man, but when this young man came to his senses, and I want you to see the recognition that led to his repentance. He says, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, and here I am dying and hungry. Duh, how stupid am I? He goes, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go to him and I'm going to say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And you notice that's a proper order too. All sin is against God first and then other people. It is a sin because God says it's wrong, not because other people in our life try to convince us it is. It is always a sin against God first and then others. He says, I'm going to get up. I'm going to acknowledge that I've sinned. Confession, I have sinned. Humility, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired men. Submission, Lord, you know what? You... Tell me what it is you want me to do and I'll do it from now on because when I did what I want to do when I want to do it, I ended up slopping with pigs trying to eat pig food. And you know what? I'm thinking you're probably a little sharper than me. And that's what it is. Genuine repentance is not mere intention. It is an act of turning from sin to God. Folks, it saddens me when I hear folks who tell me what they intend to do yet do nothing. You know, I got to get right with God then get right with God. You know, I need to start going to church. Then start going to church. You know, I need to get involved in a men's Bible study or a discipleship group or do Operation Timothy. I need to grow in my faith. I need to go to the women's Bible. Then go. You know, telling people all the intentions of things that you think you should be doing doesn't change your state whatsoever. You know what? Just do it. You know, I need, to, I need to repent. I need to turn from this behavior of mine. I need to stop watching porn on the internet or on late night television. I need to stop doing these things that are wrong before God. You know, I really should stop drinking because it's not a good testimony to my non-Christian friends. I should stop smoking. I should stop doing this. I should start getting on a diet. I should, you know, I really should. Well, then just do it. See, my prayer is that we would become people who would be so busy doing what it is that God is calling us to do that we don't have to tell people what our intentions are because it will be so evident by our actions. Just do it. Nike, just do it. They hit it on the head. Just do it. Stop talking about it. Just do it. I need to get involved in some service ministry. Then just do it. I need to help on the children's ministry. Do it. I want to get involved in the worship ministry. Do it. I want, you know, just do it. And stop talking about all the things you're going to do. Gosh, there are people I know, some of you, you know, you've been telling me for years all the things you're going to do. And you know what? I haven't seen you do any of it yet. Just do it. See, that's the sinful rebellion of the younger son. 
And now we see the surprising response of the father, which is just, this is just incredible. Notice in verse 20, the anticipation of his father it says, and he got up and he came to his father. And here's another great bite of the Bible. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. Ran and embraced him and kissed him. Notice this, his father was looking for him. His father was waiting and anticipating the day when sin would run its course. You know, that child that got to go away to college because that child wants to get out from the umbrella of parents who are trying to constrain their activities so they can just go crazy. The guy, a friend of mine this week that I talked to, said, man, I grew up in a Christian home, couldn't wait to join the military because when I was in the service, man, I went nuts. I just did everything I could ever want to do, all the things I wasn't allowed to do, I did it all. And you know what? And one day I finally came back to my senses. Good for you. Praise God. But I want you to notice, his father was anticipating the day that sin would run its toll. And, And the Bible tells us that this father saw his son at a distance And he recognized him and he was a mess. I mean, think what he looked like. He was disheveled and his clothes were messed and he'd been feeding pigs and he was just a nightmare to look at. And his father probably recognized him. Maybe it was the way that he walked. Maybe it was the way that he carried himself. But whatever it was, his father recognized him and saw him coming and he ran to him. And the affection that we see is literally, the Bible tells us that he fell upon him and he embraced him and he continued to kiss him. He kissed him and kissed him and kissed him and kissed him and he didn't care what anybody thought of him. Now remember, what's the story all about? Well, Jesus tells a story and an accusation about, well, how can Jesus gather to himself tax gatherers and sinners? How can he embrace those who have fallen so short of these, their standard? And the Bible says that, you know what? The father saw this son who was repentant and remorseful and went to him. And he came to him and said, Dad, I'm sorry. And he wouldn't even let the words get out of his mouth. And he said, quickly, go get the best robe, a signal of royalty. He had been adopted into the family of God. What a picture that is for you and I have repented of sin and believe in Jesus Christ and receive him as Savior. We are children of God to those who believe in his name. We are given royalty. We are now adopted into the family of God. We're children of God. We are given royalty. He got the signet ring, which was a picture of authority. And he had the authority. And, he, and Jesus says, you know, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. You go now into the world. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded you. You have been given my authority, my signet ring, to go into the world and proclaim truth. So the truth will set people free. And lastly, put sandals on him. For slaves never had sandals, only sons wore sandals. And restored him back to his complete and full fellowship. The affection was just incredible. You know, slower the steps of repentance, but swift are the feet of forgiveness. The father was out of breath running to him, but he wasn't out of love. And when he saw him, he embraced him. The affection was there, the acceptance was there. And the attitude was one of great joy. Men and women, let me just make this as clear as possible. We have got to demonstrate the same type of anticipation and affection and acceptance when a sinner repents and turns from sin and turns to God. We must be there to welcome them into the family of God. And so many of us, as we get older and cynical and a little more bitter, we sit back and we go, well, we'll just wait to see if it's real. We'll wait to see if it's legit. We'll wait to see if it's real. There's any fruit. 
hey, you don't know that, I don't know that, but if they profess repentance, then we accept them and we throw our arms around them and we embrace them. And maybe that love and acceptance is the, 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 the foundation or the, or the soil that will nourish fruit to, to grow. But cynicism and skepticism and, and, and neglect and, and, and that standoffishness that we see with the Pharisees and the scribes, that's not conducive to spiritual growth. This father didn't care what anybody thought. When it came to forgive him, he forgave him with no recriminations. You know, there's a way of forgiving that, you know, forgiveness isn't really forgiveness. It's conferred as a favor. Well, you know, I'll go ahead and forgive you. But if you start to act up again, then I'm going to withdraw it. You know how that works sometimes? You know, somebody, they, they drop the ball, they make a mistake, they ask for forgiveness. I'll forgive you, but. There's no buts to forgiveness. I will forgive you, period. And as God removes it from the east, from the west, our sins from us, so I shall never hold it against you. I will forget it as God has forgotten mine. Be kind and tenderhearted, forgiven one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven us. I will forget it. See, Abraham Lincoln was asked once, he said, hey, what are you going to do? After the war is over and all the Southerners come back to the Union. And they were waiting for some words of resentment or retribution. And you know what he said to them? He said, I will treat them as if they had never left. And that's the amazing grace of God. I will treat them as if they never rebelled and left my grace. I don't understand that. It doesn't get any better than that. And we need to be people who exemplify that. And if this was the end of it, how wonderful this would be. What a great place to end. But it's not done because Jesus brings it full circle to the ones who had accused him of this heinous sin of accepting tax gatherers and sinners. So he goes on and he finishes this parable with the selfish reaction of the older son. Notice this. We're told the older son was in the field. When he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants, began inquiring what was going on. And he said, hey, your brother's come. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him. Isn't that a beautiful word? It's the same word that we see in verse 2. Jesus received tax gatherers and sinners. The father has now received the rebellious, repentant son with an attitude of affection, with anticipation, with acceptance, and an attitude of great joy. I'm so glad you're back. This son of mine who was lost has now been found. He was dead and now he's alive. Man, it's time to party. Yay, Crockett. Isn't that great? And that's what he did. But, you know, he, you know the, the brother had this attitude. It says, but, here's a sad but of the Bible, but he became angry. And he wasn't willing to go in. And his father had to come out and beg him to reconsider his attitude. If he had come in the back door, it would have been okay. If his dad would have punished him, it would have been okay. If his dad would have said, hey, you're not my son anymore. You can go out and work in the fields with the servants. The brother would have said, that's a good deal. He would have been happy with that. See, and that's what happened with the Pharisees. That's what happened with the religious leaders. That's what happens with church people today. It's kind of like, you know what, our sins weren't that great what you forgave us for. This sin is unacceptable. And so therefore, we're on a much higher spiritual plane than you people down here. God, you can let them in the back door, but don't bring them in the front door and give them the robe and the ring and the sandals like you've given all the rest of us. Hey, you know what, we got to have a tier. We got to have some structure here. We got to have some social classes here. And let me just tell you God's social class. He is God. We are not 
And we are all his bro- we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, but there is only one God, Jesus Christ, him crucified, and the rest of us are on the same equal plane, forgiven by the grace of God. Praise God. So we don't want any snobby, snooty people around here walking around with their nose up, thinking somehow you're better than somebody else. Bottom line is this. Get it in your head. Get it in your heart. He's God. We're not. We're all on the same level together. We're here to serve Him. We're here to please Him. And we're here to love one another. This guy forgot all that he had. Look at verse 31. He had it all. He says, my child, you've always been with me and all that is mine is yours. You've had it all. When he's telling the Pharisees and religious people, you had it all. You were my chosen people. You were, the, you were the keepers of the laws of God. You were accessible to God. You had it all. And yet you got more hung up on your religion than you did on your relationship with God. And you walked, you walked far from God, but you had it all. But you weren't willing to repent of your sins. You were self-righteous. You thought you were better than other people. You're not better than anybody. We're all saved by the grace of God. If not for the grace of God, go you and I. None of us are better than anybody else. We're all equally lost. And you know why? Because dead is dead. When you are dead and I am dead in my sins, we are all dead. There's not degrees of dead. Dead is dead. Some of us think, well, I wasn't as dead. Dead is dead. I mean, you can walk into a mortuary and see somebody laying in a box and go, hey, that person looks good. But they're dead. You can walk in the next room and go, that person looks not as good. It doesn't matter. They're still dead. It's like, you know, it's just the way it is. And we've got to recognize and understand that he, he forgot all that he had. He felt resentment towards his brother. He felt resentment toward the father. He failed to rejoice in his brother's return. He called him this son of yours. He didn't even acknowledge him as a brother. This S-O-Y of yours. I mean, what, you know, what, what's up with that? And that's what his attitude was. He said, well, wait a minute. He's not just a son of mine. He's a brother of yours. And don't forget that. See, as we look at this, his whole attitude was one of a lack of sympathy. Men and women, if you don't take, and I don't take great joy in the conversion of sinners, we need to listen to the gentle voice of God. You and I have everything. God's not holding anything back. For if he's given us his son, hasn't he given us his best? What else could he be holding back from us? When we see him bless others and blessings that are different than how he blesses us, let us rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Let us bear one another's burdens. Let us be grateful for what he has and not compare ourselves to others like this son was doing to his younger brother. Hey, I deserve, you know what? All of us deserve hell other than the fact that God has shown us mercy. Praise God for his mercy. See, we need to rejoice in that. When Dwight Moody first came to England, a minister said, I don't believe that Mr. Moody sent by God because many of the people converted under his ministry have never gone to a place of worship before. You think? Well, let's hope. I mean, that's what it's all about, to go out into the world and find people who don't know God and have never heard of the love of God in Christ Jesus and His death on the cross, the power of His resurrection, God's plan of salvation, that we need to repent and turn from sin and turn to God, trust in Christ. You're not going to find those people coming to church. You're going to find them in your place of business and in your family and in your neighborhoods, your communities. You're going to find them, you know, on your athletic teams. You're going to find them in your high schools. You're going to find them in the colleges. You're going to find them all over the place. People that don't go to church. 
And yet we will find people who come to church that still need to hear the gospel, but the reality of it is is that, you know what, Moody was right. I went and preached to people who weren't going to church because I'm thinking they're the ones that needed to hear the gospel more than people who are coming to church. Really? Good strategy. And these people thought, well, these people, he only lets, and here was the quote, he only lets the riffraff in. Wow. God help us to never be like that. But look at verse 32. Another but. Man, this story has gone all over the place. What a roller coaster ride. But we had to be merry and rejoice. For his, this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. You know, in conclusion, the parable has two major points. First, repentance means an absolute reversal of status. The lost son has become a family member of, again. And when you and I repent of sin and trust in Christ, his death on the cross, his resurrection on our behalf and receive him as Savior, you and I are adopted back into the family of God again. That is how man was originally created to have fellowship with God, but sin broke that bond. We are back in the family of God again. We have come to our original God-given senses of knowing and seeing God for who He is. The second thing is that others should have joy when a penitent sinner returns to the family. Reconciliation involves not only God and the individual, but also individual and the community of believers. You know, the story's left hanging. We don't know what the brother did. We don't know whether he went in. We don't know whether he didn't. We don't know if he ever asked for forgiveness for his attitude or didn't. It's kind of left hanging. And you know what? And that's where God leaves you and I. I don't know. I don't know your heart. I don't know your attitude. I don't know if you're a prodigal that can relate and you've been running from God doing your own thing and you're kind of tired of living like that and it's time to come home. I don't know what's going on in your heart. One of the things I love about this passage is because we debate all these theological things that really don't, they're just a waste of time if nothing else. But the Calvinist will say, hey, you know, we're predestined to be saved. You know, God only saves those he's predestined to be saved. And we see a beautiful picture of that. And their argument would be, look, you know what? The shepherd had to go after the sheep. And the woman had to go after the coin. And I say, that's great. That's true. And then the Armenians say, hey, you know what, though? But if it wasn't for man's effort in finding God, man would never be found by God. And we see a perfect example of a repentant sinner who turned around and said, you know what, I'm seeking after my father, I want to go back home. And to me, it's the beautiful thing of the circle of the message of God. These things don't have to be squared up because they're taught just so clearly in Scripture. And that is this, God is seeking us and he who seeks God will not be disappointed. God is seeking you. Are you seeking him? If you are, you will find him because he's looking for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth. We thank you for your seeking love that hunts us down with the love of Christ. Jesus said, I came to to seek and to save that which was lost, to serve and to give my life as ransom for many. The Bible says those who seek God will never be disappointed because he's not far from any of us. And the reason is, clearly, he's seeking us. God, it's my prayer today that those who are here are seeking you. And if they are, they'll turn and trust in you today. They'll turn from sin by acknowledging their sinfulness. 
God, I'm sick of this. I'm sick of living like this. I'm sick of this emptiness. I'm sick of the, the shallow things of this world, the temporary pleasures of sin. I'm miserable, and God, forgive me for my sin. And I turn as best I can from that sin to you, and I throw myself upon your mercy. I believe that Jesus died on the cross and that he rose again from the dead. And he gives life to all who come to him. And I receive him as best I know how today as my Savior. I thank you that you are seeking me. And I thank you for putting the desire to seek you in my heart. God, my prayer also is for those who are the prodigals. Those who are wandering from God. Those who are contemplating in their heart right now a physical departure. Though they're still here. But you know their heart and what they want to do if the resources were available. God, I pray those resources will never be available if it means they'll wander far from you and, dis- and destroy themselves in the process. God, I pray that they would uh, have a broken heart and return to you today. I pray that God's family, God's people would receive those broken people back into fellowship and restore them and love them as you love us unconditionally. Not holding anything over anybody's head, not a wait and see basis, but you are, for- you are forgiving God. And you tell us that you, if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We just thank you that you first sought us out so that we would have a desire to seek you. We're grateful that we have found you, but more importantly, that you have found us and that you have called us by name. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.